Dallas Willard uh, wrote in, I think, one of his probably greatest works, a, a book called Renovation of the Heart. He said that uh, human beings cannot function in the world if they're forced to constantly see their sinfulness. And so denial is, a, is an absolutely essential coping strategy for lost men and women and even for saved men and women sometimes. And, uh, you know, I find as I'm reading these passages, as I'm digesting these passages, as I'm writing these sermons, I, I find myself uh, facing myself. And um, I told my wife yesterday, she said, I was in the middle of cleaning up the living room and stopped for a minute, and she said, you have a strange look on your face. Do you want to talk about it? And I said, no. And uh, I said, there's a part of me that needs to die, and I keep giving it CPR. And that is just the truth of the human condition, that when Jesus calls us, he calls us to come and die to one kind of death in order to have a new kind of life. Our scripture this morning is what it has been for the last three weeks. This will be the last sermon in this particular passage, and then we will move forward. But Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 3, and you were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. We were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Is that the sound system making that noise? Oh, apparently somebody's flying a helicopter through our uh, parking lot. Well, God bless them. Hope they don't crash. Father, make your book live for us this morning. Show us yourself in your word, and then give us a very clear glimpse of ourselves. It's in Jesus' name that we ask it. Amen. When I started working as a hospice chaplain in Omaha, I found myself taking care of people from all sorts of spiritual backgrounds. Uh, Omaha was settled in the early 20th century by a lot of German immigrants, and as a result, there was a, just a heavy population of German folks. You would find these German social clubs that had been there since the 1930s. Germania Manor Corps was one of them, I remember, and that was where young German men would go to meet young German women and have young German children in Omaha. And, um, and they were supper clubs and dance clubs and things like that. And as a result, there were a lot of Catholics and a lot of Lutherans in Omaha. And then more recently, there had been other waves of immigration. You found black folks coming north particularly in the 30s and 40s, to work some of the jobs that were available there and to escape the Jim Crow South. And you found uh, uh, later on uh, Latinos from Mexico and Central America who came to work the meatpacking plants around the city. And a lot of those folks were Catholic as well. And, and so I found it helpful to have a prayer book 
that was flexible and also grounded in history, the, the history that's common uh, and the tradition that's common to all sorts of denominations. I would never, of course, use anything that offended my conscience or, or was contrary to my understanding and my views and my theology, but there's a lot of overlap by the mercy of God in our common history. And so I found it helpful to have a prayer book that was flexible, but also grounded in history and tradition. And uh, this prayer book, when used rightly, is not a straitjacket that strangles spiritual life and vitality. Um, rather, it's uh, like a strong, well-thought-out scaffolding to give things you want to say a structure and a voice, but don't know quite how to say yourself sometimes. And, and then you can also add your own words onto those things. So when I started looking around, I said, okay, what's the best thing I can use? My, my options were a bit limited. Um, initially, I tried to find a, a, a Lutheran prayer book, a missouri Synod Lutheran prayer book. One of my fellow chaplains had one of those, and I thought, that looks pretty good. But I was unable to purchase one. And uh, apparently, you need to be in some kind of secret missouri Synod Lutheran club, and I wasn't in it, so I couldn't get one. Uh, so I ended up settling for the Book of Common Prayer which is the Episcopal Church's prayer book. Now, it's a little bit of a wimpy prayer book, and that's actually what made it work for my own purposes so well. And I was able to find one with a Bible and a prayer book together in one, so this is it. I carried this with me everywhere I went for a couple of years. And uh, it's good to have it all in one because if you're a hospice chaplain, you have to sanitize everything you carry into a patient's house or room. And then when you leave, you've got to sanitize it all again. And so the fewer things you carry in, the fewer things you have to remember to sanitize when you're done. Now, there are several editions of the Book of Common Prayer. And the reasons for those editions aren't always about updating language. Usually it has something to do with how the church's theology, or often the theology of her leaders, not necessarily the people, has changed. And those changes are often expressed more by what's left out than what's written down. So I want to show you a passage from what's called the daily office or morning prayer from two different versions of the prayer book. First, I want to show you that portion that's from the 1979 prayer book, and I'm just going to read that to you to get quickly, and it should be up on the screen there. And, and as in daily morning prayer, it's, it's designed to be done either as a congregation or by yourself, and, uh, and it starts with, Dearly beloved, we have come together in the presence of Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, to render thanks for the great benefits that we have received at His hands and to set forth his most worthy praise, and to hear his holy word, and to ask for ourselves and on behalf of others those things that are necessary for our life and salvation. And so that we may prepare ourselves in heart and mind to worship him, let us kneel in silence and with penitent and obedient hearts confess our sins that we may obtain forgiveness by his infinite goodness and mercy. And you read that and you think, well, there's nothing wrong with that. That's just fine, and, and it is. But then you see what it used to say. In the 1928 Book of Common Prayer, 
you have the same prayer, the same opening, the, the same function in the service, and I highlighted the portion that they cut out. So listen to the 1928. Dearly beloved brethren, the scripture moveth us in sundry places to acknowledge and confess our manifold sins and wickedness, that we should not dissemble nor cloak them before the face of Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, but confess them with a humble, lowly, penitent, and obedient heart, to the end that we may obtain forgiveness of the same by his infinite goodness and mercy. And although we ought at all times humbly to acknowledge our sins before God, yet also, yet we ought chiefly to do so when we assemble and meet together to render thanks for the great benefits that we have received at his hand and to set forth his most worthy praise and to hear his most holy word and to ask for the things which are requisite and necessary as well for the body as the soul. Therefore, I pray and beseech you that as many as are here present to accompany me with a pure heart and a humble voice under the throne of heavenly grace, saying, da-da-da-da-da-da. What do you notice about what was cut out when you look at that? I, I highlighted the bits that were different because I wanted you to notice what was cut out in 1979. The stuff that is cut out is about the heinousness of sin, the impairment of our relationship with God that is caused by sin, our desire to cloak our sins and hide them even in the face of God who knows everything. It's, it's to avoid dealing with the fact that sin still dwells deeply in us even though we are saved and still corrupts us at the very core. All of that got pared down in 1979. And sin no longer was the main barrier between us and God. It's just something that we need to say a quick sorry about that to God for, and then we can move on. And that's just one example. I could cite others. And it wasn't just the Episcopal church that did that. All of the churches did that. All the mainline churches did that in that era. They were all snipping away at things. And the things they were snipping away at were the things about sin, about judgment, about the holiness of God. Well, in 1979, it was the mainline churches. Today, the evangelical church is doing it now. There's just an assumption that people are basically good, they just make some mistakes sometimes, or they only do the bad things that they do because of their brokenness. Their brokenness is all somebody else's fault too, so they really aren't responsible. It's because of mommy or daddy or grandma or my society or whatever. And there's this persistent desire on the part of modern men and women to insist that they're not really bad and the parts of them that are bad are not their responsibility. Indeed, in our day, people gain social status because of their brokenness and because of their victimhood. And you have this uh, rather pathetic kind of what I call the trauma Olympics going on on Facebook and Instagram and all these other places where people are out to try and out-victim each other on social media. And nobody wants to accept the truth about who they are in their depths. Nobody wants to accept the truth about the things that they have done and the damage that has been caused to other people 
by the things that they have done. Nobody wants to say, woe is me. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. No one wants to say that. Now, I say all of this to show you that for a long time, decades and decades, actually, these verses in Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 3, have been deeply offensive. I found it interesting that some modern commentators who are quite sound found themselves tripping all over themselves to try and smooth out issues and try and make this text as inoffensive as possible without compromising the meaning of it, and some of them came awful close to compromising the meaning of it a time or two. You may or may not be surprised to learn that I take a different approach. To me, the fact that people don't want to hear what this text has to say and will indeed suppress the message of this text whenever they can is proof that the text is true and accurate and also proof that this text right now and the things that it says are precisely the things that we need to hear. We don't need to hear what we already disagree with or rather what we already agree with. English is my first language. You wouldn't know that. We, we don't need to hear the stuff that we already think. And some people come to church just to hear stuff they already think, parroted back to them and go, yep, that's what I think. Glad to know I'm right. Preacher says I'm right. I know I'm right. I'm going to leave now. We need to hear where we're wrong. We need to hear where we're wrong. And so when we come to texts like this and we find them offensive, that's good. That's the Bible working like the Bible's supposed to work. It is not called a sharp two-edged sword for nothing. It is not a sharp two-edged sword for whittling your pencils. It is a sharp two-edged sword for separating bone from sinew. It's a sharp two-edged sword because it's a surgical instrument. So keep in mind here that when we read this text, Paul is speaking to Christian people, and he's speaking to them about what they themselves used to be. So this is not, hey, we're better than everybody else. This is, we were just as bad as everybody else. But since he's speaking about what Christians used to be, he is also, by implication, speaking of what the lost people still are, both in his day and in ours. Now, notice by way of review that he starts off by saying that we were once dead to God, dead in trespasses and sins. God, though he was there, was just not accessible to us because of a defect in us. We were spiritually dead. Second, notice that we are dominated. Satan, the father of lies, was our father, just as Jesus said in John 8, 44. Now, understand in the Bible that unless it's talking about simple biological relationships, that when the Bible talks about fathers and children, the issue at hand is not where did you come from, but rather who do you act like? The issue is not where did you come from. The issue is whose footsteps are you following? Whose behavioral likeness do you bear? 
So, for instance, in John 8, 39 through 40, the Pharisees confront Jesus and they say, we have Abraham for our father. And the implication there is that Jesus didn't know who his daddy was. That was the rumor going around about him because his mom got pregnant before she was even fully married. They say, well, we know who our father was. Abraham was our father. Now, biologically, that was true. But what does Jesus say? Jesus says biology isn't the important thing here. If you were Abraham's children, he says, you would be doing what Abraham did. But instead, you're trying to kill me, a man who told you the truth. Abraham's true children, according to Jesus, act like Abraham. A bit later in the same chapter, in verse 41, they say, well, we have God as our father. And Jesus says, if that was true, you'd love me because God sent me. No, no, he says, your father is the devil precisely because you choose to do what your father desires. So going back to Ephesians 2, we who once followed the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who is at work in the sons of disobedience, we are the children of the devil at that point. We're sons of disobedience. That means we walk in a pattern of disobedience. We're children, he says, of wrath. Children of wrath, just like the rest of mankind. So once again, we find ourselves confronting what we thought the Bible teaches and finding out what the Bible actually teaches. And while it's true that God is the creator of every human being, it's not true that God is the father of every human being. We all start off as children of the devil. We all start off as sons of disobedience, as children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. And we do not grow into this status because of the things that we do, Paul says. Now here it's going to get real offensive. This status is ours by nature. That is, from birth. The wrong things that we do spring from our nature. In the same way that apples spring forth from an apple tree by nature. An apple tree doesn't have to try hard to produce apples instead of producing peaches. No, an apple tree can only produce apples. That is its nature. And we produce fruit according to our nature from birth on. Go go to your local daycare and just watch. Watch with the law of God, the Ten Commandments, in your right hand. Open your Bible to Exodus 20 and sit down and watch those little monsters. And what will you see? Lies, theft, coveting, hair pulling, biting, tantrums, and screaming fits. You don't have to teach them how to do that stuff. They do all that stuff automatically. You have to try and civilize those little tiny barbarians. You have to teach them not to do those sorts of things. And what do they learn very quickly? They learn not to do those sort of things when you're watching, right? When they're little, they don't know that you're not always watching. But once they figure that out, oh, the gloves are off, aren't they? because they know you can't catch them at everything they do, and so statistically, they have a pretty good chance of getting away with murder. 
There, there was a, a report done by the Minnesota Crime Commission. I think it, the report was done in the late 20s or early 30s, and this was back when Minnesota was still Lutheran and Lutherans were still Lutheran. And this is a very biblical statement about crime and delinquency. Listen to what this public entity, the Minnesota Crime Commission, wrote. Every baby starts life as a little savage. He is completely selfish and self-centered. He wants what he wants when he wants it. His bottle, his mother's attention, his playmate's toys, his uncle's watch, or whatever. Deny him these things and he seethes with rage and aggressiveness which would be murderous were he not so helpless. He's dirty. He has no morals, no knowledge, no developed skills. This means that all children, not just certain children, but all children are born delinquent. If permitted to continue in their self-centered world of infancy, given free reign to their impulsive actions to satisfy each want, every child would grow up a criminal, a thief, a killer, or a rapist. Now you can impart a thin veneer of civilization and civic righteousness to your tiny barbarian, and you can show them how it benefits them to keep the rules in certain situations and circumstances, and you can threaten them with certain punishments if they get caught breaking the rules, but that usually won't stop them, will it? Did it stop you? It didn't stop me. It will just cause them to get creative at the rule breaking. And if the rules are removed, or if the rules are not enforced, all hell will break loose. Announce that you won't prosecute petty crime like shoplifting, and soon organized flash mobs will be emptying stores like they are in San Francisco and Los Angeles and Philadelphia and Chicago. If you say, we're not going to enforce the law, people go, okay, and they break the law in a systematic, contrived fashion. You see, the main problems with the one of the main problems with the political left in our day is that they're functioning on a model of the human being that's just wrong. It assumes that once everybody has everything they think they need, nobody will do bad things anymore. Now, I initially was going to put up a cartoon and, and that was actually drawn by somebody after the George Floyd protests in Minneapolis about all the benefits that would happen if we, if we just abolished the police department. And uh, I'm, I'm not going to go through that with you, but I'm going to put it up on Facebook. But it really hinges on the idea that, you know, if people just have certain social services and education and enough food and, and these things, then nirvana will just break out. It'll be utopia. And they really believe it. They really believe it because they don't understand what the Bible says about the human condition from birth on. That we are by nature little hellions who grow up into big hellions unless something restrains us. And even the restraining is very imperfect. It's just not true that when people have everything they need, they won't do evil. Very little is actually done by people who are just trying to meet some basic need like food or clothing or shelter. And when people in those circumstances do actually do something wrong, 
for instance, they steal to feed a hungry child, for instance, almost nobody would dream of holding that against them. But you find me one situation where people are only doing wrong in order to meet a need that they can't meet any other way, and I will show you 10,000 cases where wrongs were done for a thrill or in response to wounded pride or in a state of greed or to feed an addiction or in a state of wrath or because it was just easier and more convenient than doing what is right. There are many problems in society, and some of those problems are built into the system, and I don't have an issue admitting that. And we should uh, fix those problems wherever we can and try very hard not to create new ones while we're fixing the old ones. I have no problem with that. But the main problem is not the system. The main problem is the individual human heart. The problems that are shredding our society and societies all over the world are not systemic. They're not political. They're not sociological. They can't be solved by education. They ultimately cannot be solved by passing good and just laws and then carefully and humanely enforcing those laws, although that can bring some measure of order. The problem arises from the fact that we are by nature children of wrath children of the devil, sons of disobedience. The Spirit of God has been restraining evil in the world through what we sometimes call common grace, and we feel like maybe he's taking his hands off a little bit more as we look around. Not everyone is as bad as they could possibly be, but that's no credit to them. That's only because of the activity of God. So you see, this fact, coupled with the fact that I mentioned last week that Satan controls the world system in every nation, is one of the reasons why I'm skeptical about the question of Christianity and politics, whether that's political left or political right. Because the question essentially is, do you want to throw your weight behind the servants of the devil in one party or the servants of the devil in the other party? And they'll both wiggle certain policies or agendas in your face that you like and that you think are good, and then they'll demand that you ignore all the other horrible stuff that God forbids, which they are actually going to prioritize the minute they get your vote and get elected. After which point, in my experience, they will usually forget that you exist until the next election and even mock you behind closed doors. You see, the people are corrupt. Can anybody look at the government's handling under either administration of the COVID-19 crisis and go, yep, these are all people of goodwill just doing exactly the best that they possibly can? Can anybody really say that? No. They're corrupt. They're driven by other interests and other fears. They manipulate. And you can see them doing it. All it takes is five minutes on YouTube. And I don't care where you stand on these issues. You can see the corruption. The human heart is corrupt. And because the human heart is corrupt and the devil runs the world, the people that are running us are corrupt. They're working for the devil. And even a good policy or a good law will be shipwrecked on the reality of the corrupted human heart on the part of those people whose lives it was meant to make better. That's why the Bible is not a blueprint for running a secular nation. The Bible is a blueprint for how the people of God should live together in a wicked world that can only be improved 
by one redeemed heart at a time. And even that only works if the redeemed people diligently pursue spiritual transformation to the point where they become extraordinarily gentle, kind, courageous, loving people whose lives are marked by an unexplainable goodness and power. You see, until a a people is redeemed, you can't hire enough policemen to make sure that nobody breaks the law. After a people is redeemed, you don't need very many policemen to enforce the law because people will do the right thing simply because they want to please God. God gave us this magnificent, beautiful world. Even in its fallen condition, it's just amazing. He gave us the gift of family. He gave us the gift of marriage. He gave us grain and wine and milk and meat. He gave us the sun and the moon and the stars in their billions. He gave us the fields and the forests and the mountains and the prairies and the salty seas and the lakes and the rivers. He gave us spring's flowers and summer's fruits and the beauty of fall and the crisp snows and the winter cold. He gave us the joy of friendship and the pleasures of growing old together. This world is so good. And we can't stop ourselves from breathing poison into it at every turn. We ruin everything that we touch. I can't go from my house to this church to the funeral home on a snowy day in Youngstown without falling into wrath at least four times while I'm driving. Because none of y'all know what you're doing on the snow. Even you guys with four-wheel drive, you don't know what you're doing. Just go home. Wait for it to melt. Right? You're in my way, and I'm most important. I ruin everything. So do you. We got this part of our yard that is not obviously part of our yard unless you're paying attention. We call it spare oom. I don't, I won't, I'm going to tell you why, but, but spare oom is, is on a side, there's a sidewalk and everybody walks and I can't count the amount of garbage that's been thrown in my yard. Beer cans, dirty diapers. It's just amazing what people will toss into my yard because they're not sure it's my yard. They think it belongs to the city of Youngstown. They mess it all up. He, He gave us all these things and we ruin them with great ease we will uh, thoughtlessly lie we'll break solemn important promises at the drop of a hat we'll wound hearts with our tongues we don't receive those people who God puts in our lives as precious treasures and gifts but rather we despise them and demean them and talk about them behind their backs we exploit We manipulate. We run over the weak when they get in our way and we defile the creation by polluting the water and the air and the soil. We poison everything we touch. There are now microplastics in Antarctica. I didn't even know what microplastics were. We're making so much plastic, it's floating around in the air and it's clogging things up in Antarctica. We're pigs. How do we do that? We act like... Our life and everything in it is something that we made happen instead of receiving it as a gift to cherish. What is the only response that a good and righteous and holy God could have to people who behave like we behave? 
Well, the Bible says in Psalm 711, God is a righteous judge and God is angry with the wicked every day. The only rational and correct response that a righteous God who cared about the good could have is wrath. When somebody hurts your child, what do you feel? Wrath, because you love your child. Well, what do you think God feels? As he looks on everything that he loves, and he sees it consistently, persistently destroyed. Not by people who don't know any better. People who know better. On the testimony of the word of God, they know better. It's because they don't care. It's because they think other things are more important than the good. But God doesn't think so. And on account of that, he is angry. Now, let me circle back and make a point that I've made before, but it bears repeating. When the Bible talks about God, it has to do so in a way that we can understand and we can relate to in our smallness and in our weakness and in our limited experience. So he does that. He talks about himself in a way that's accommodated to us. Calvin uh, called it, uh, likened it to, to a parent or a caregiver talking baby talk to a small child so that the child can understand what's going on. And when the Bible talks about, for instance, God having hands or feet or eyes or a mighty right arm, we recognize that God is a spirit and he doesn't have a body. That's one of the things we teach in the children's catechism. God doesn't have a body, he's a spirit. And so he doesn't actually have eyes and hands and feet and right arms. And we call those expressions in the Bible that attribute to him hands and feet and right arms, we call those anthropomorphisms. Anthro is the the Greek word for human being, and morphe is the Greek word for form. So the Bible is talking about God as though he had a human form. Well, when the Bible attributes human emotions or passions to God, it's also the language of accommodation. And those are called anthropopathisms. Anthropos, human, pathos, strong emotion. Now, if you've ever lived with an angry person, part of what makes it its own special little kind of hell is that you can't predict when that person is just gonna explode all over you. Because the anger is never consistent and it's never proportional to the actual offense. You leave some little household chore undone and on Tuesday, that's fine. And the angry person is totally unperturbed. And you think, wow. Things are getting better. And then on Saturday, you overlook that same little chore again by accident. And rather than saying nothing or saying something kind and helpful or even expressing some normal level of annoyance or frustration, that person just explodes all over you in a volatile fit of anger and you don't sleep in the same bedroom together for a month and your ulcer flares and you get migraines because it's a destructive way to live, it really is. It kills you physically, it can kill you. And so you're always walking on eggshells around this person because you never know what's gonna set them off. God is not like that. In an anthropopathism, God is treating you as a human being would treat you if he was animated by that passion. So when we talk about the anger or the wrath of God or the hatred of God, we're not meant to think of God as having a fit of temper 
God's not like that. He's not volatile and unpredictable. Instead, we must understand that God is treating the object of his wrath as a man would if he was in the grip of the passion of wrath. And when a man is in the throes of a passion of wrath, what's he like? Well, he's relentless against the object of his wrath, isn't he? He'll let nothing stand in his way as he tries to exact revenge. There's no reasoning with him until his temper cools. And that's how God is towards the sinner. Not only because of their actual sin, but because of their orientation towards sin from birth. Let no one say that God will not punish somebody for an orientation towards sin. We see here that he will. He is relentless in his pursuit of revenge against the sinner. His purpose is fixed, and he's not going to get distracted. He's not going to forget. The mere passage of time will not cool his wrath. He won't give someone a pass and let them off with a warning citation on some random day just because he's having a good day. No, no. His wrath is unquenchable. His wrath is fixed. It is relentless. And there is nothing that the object of his wrath can do to appease his wrath. Even God's love will not quench God's wrath. His wrath cannot be extinguished. It can only be poured out on an object of his wrath. Now let me bring this around to a real practical level. Why is the church so weak in our day? Why does the gospel trumpet sound so uncertainly amongst the lost in our day? It's because we have ceased to believe in the wrath of God. The church does not believe in the wrath of God anymore. And so when we give the gospel to someone, we have to find ourselves peddling it on some other basis than the wrath of God. We try and peddle it as lifestyle enhancement to a people who are already pretty happy with their lives most of the time. Now, R.C. Sproul wrote a book. You should get it. A little booklet. It's called Save From What? And the, the, the thing that prompted the booklet was as he would drive from his home to Ligonier headquarters in Orlando, Florida, every day there was a billboard there put up by a church that said, God's not mad. And R.C. Sproul was like, really? Then what are you saved from? By the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. What is it that, he sa- that you're being saved from? If God's not angry, you're being saved from the wrath of God. Church leaders try and figure out how to make the gospel relevant to this demographic or that demographic. How shall we present the gospel to millennials and Gen Z, they say? How shall we present the gospel to the black community? How shall we present the gospel on the Indian reservation? How shall we proclaim the gospel among the Guatemalan or the Honduran agricultural laborers in our midst? What do we need to do to make the gospel relevant to the coastal elites in Los Angeles and San Francisco and New York City? I'll tell you how. Simply tell them what the Bible says. Excuse me, you're a liar, you're a thief, an idolater, an adulterer, You're filled with hatred for God and malice towards your fellow human beings. 
You are boastful, proud, arrogant, a hater of God, a hater of the good. You suppress the truth and unrighteousness. You invent evil. You are envious. You are filled with strife. You are a gossip. You are a slanderer. You are by nature a child of wrath. You are an abomination. And baby, you were born this way. And the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against you on account of this. Boom. The gospel is instantly relevant. And it's instantly relevant whether you live in Idora or whether you're a Guatemalan meatpacker. It's relevant to a self-satisfied Harvard-educated banking executive in the Hamptons on exactly the same basis. And you'd say, we can't tell them that. You'll offend them, and then they won't want to hear about Jesus. Why do you think Jesus came, nitwit? To save you from the wrath of God. To bear the wrath of God as a substitute for each person who believes in his message and places their confidence in him and enters into a new kind of life as his apprentice and follower. We sing about it. Do we believe it? For on that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. For every sin on him was laid. Here in the death of Christ, I live. For the last hundred years, the evangelical church has been trying to present Jesus to people without telling them why they desperately need Jesus. Because we don't want to offend them with the truth. And on account of our cowardice, we have peddled false versions of the gospel. We have created millions of false converts. We have a church that can't speak clearly to her own people about the things of God, and hundreds of millions have sunk into hell on our watch, and God is not pleased with us. He is not pleased with us. Let me tell you something else. You can't understand the love of God until you first understand the wrath of God. The wrath of God is the backdrop for the love of God. You can't understand the cross until you understand the wrath of God. You cannot live a Christian life with an appropriate sense of joy and gratitude and holiness and power until you understand the wrath of God. The good news is not good until you understand the bad news. Let the church once again stand and proclaim the whole counsel of God. Let us uphold the holy law of God, which is designed to penetrate the armor of a sinful heart and cut and bite and wound with the truth. And then let us heal those wounds with the balm of Jesus Christ. You know, in the late 1700s, revival broke out, probably the largest revival in history. It broke out both in America and in Britain. It's called the First Great Awakening. You want to know how those men preached the Gospels? This was the Wesleys. This was Jonathan Edwards. This was Whitfield. You know how those men preached the Gospel? They started with the law of God. And they unfolded the law of God, not for five or ten minutes at the beginning of the sermon, but for days in sermons. 
until the people hearing were so crushed by the exposition of God's law that they cried out, what do I need to do to be saved? And then they said, come to Jesus and you will be saved. And people got saved in their thousands and their tens of thousands. It's said of the city of Philadelphia, Ben Franklin said, I walk everywhere at night and everywhere I go, I hear psalms being sung by families out of open windows because the people were changed. They were converted. And it set the course of this nation in a much better direction than it would have otherwise. Let us go back and recover these things for they are the methodology of God for accomplishing his work in the world. Let us trust him that he knows what he's talking about. Amen and amen. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer.